Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here. This is Eurofolk Radio. It is July 1st, 2023. Will be the, will this be the last 4th of July Independence Day for America? It's looking pretty grim, folks. It's looking pretty grim. Transgenderism, transhumanism, transbankingism. <laughs> it's amazing what we're having to go through and not to mention COVID and all the fake diseases, fake wars, fake this, fake that, fake, fake, fake going around everywhere. And the world is still not aware. The, the world still does not have eyes to see and ears to hear of what's really going on. It's all been predicted in the Bible, too. All been predicted. Yes, I say Lily's in the chat room, Pure Lily, who uh, works in the background for Eurofolk Radio and does a lot of great work, has her own uh, website, uh, which uh, is uh, displayed here in the chat room, uh, study.faithweb.com, uh, transphobia, right? <laughs> Yeah, trans, trans, uh, I'm trans, 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 uh, transiting into another dimension. <laughs> what would, what would be the word for that? Fear of transiting into another dimension. There's got to be a word for it. You know, some Jewish psychologist would have made up a word for it for sure. But today we're going to be discussing, uh, one of the issues, the div- dividing issues between Two seed liners and non-seed liners, and there's many. And I would say for the last several years, four or five years, even more, I have been fellowshipping with a lot of non-seed liners to find out where their ideas are coming from, how they have developed their ideas, etc., etc. And we mentioned a little bit of this this morning where Sheldon Emery did not want to believe in the idea of Satan or hell or, or that there is a place called Hades. And we encountered in the, the Psalms in Genesis to Revelation this morning that the, indeed the definition of the word Hades does mean a place for disembodied spirits. There's no doubt about it. A lot of non-seedliners don't want to believe that there is such a thing as hell or the underworld or or that uh, disembodied spirits can hover around you, <laughs> like Tinkerbell. Of course they can. Uh, Paul tells us that we have guardian angels hovering around us, and uh, there's another dimension. Uh, this this dimension of our eyes and ears, the uh, five senses, the dimension of the five senses, is just a small part of the universe. Uh, there are other dimensions that and physicists have all, all come to this conclusion as well, that there is more to reality than the five senses can discern, and that is just common knowledge for people with uh, common sense and understanding. So we're going to get into this document here called The Devils of Eden by Dave Barley, and it is a critical analysis uh, by Pure Lily. And so let's get into it here. Issues, and this is Dave Barley speaking here. She has his uh, prose in red and hers in green. Issues dealing with Satan and Lucifer, we seem to be bent on the fact that there is a literal Lucifer and that the verses in the Bible clearly prove and demonstrate that. So, so Dave Barley is following in the footsteps of Sheldon Emery who came out against the very idea that Satan exists or there, but it really demands a lot of questions to be answered. You know, do you believe, for example, that the spirits ejected by Yahshua from the person possessed by, by devils, a number of devils, and those devils cast into a herd of swine, do you not believe that those spirits exist? I mean, those certainly those. Uh, that's that's not a metaphorical chapter <laughs> or uh, or segment of the Gospels. That is to be taken literally. So, if we have literal demons, for sure, and uh, the Bible is full of uh, you know, disembodied spirits all, all throughout it. So, I, I don't know where Sheldon Emery came up with this idea that there is no literal Satan or a spirit 
that is a disembodied uh, entity floating around in a, a different dimension that can enter and leave this dimension. And uh, even scientists will tell you that this is possible, right? I mean, quantum mechanics has told us lots about the universe and a lot of the universe is much stranger than any scientist believed before quantum mechanics became the ruling, uh, you know, uh, thesis of science. You know, like uh, the separation uh, formula that uh, two uh, it, it used to be believed that no action could uh, precipitate faster than the speed of light, but that has been proven untrue. Uh, we find that uh, there are many instances uh, proven science by scientific experimentation that uh, one uh, cause can have an effect, you know, miles away w with no time elapsed, right? So there's a dimension which allows this to happen. It's just a matter of accessing it. And of course, there's been all the research on, you know, the uh, mind over matter, uh, telepathy, etc., etc. Uh, the government even has a program of uh, looking into the future. Etc. I mean, these things are really established facts. So, uh, I, I guess that the non-seed liners are kind of a uh, skeptical branch of Christianity that don't want to believe in miracles. Don't want to. Uh, maybe they do believe in miracles, but they rarely talk about it. Uh, but they certainly don't want to believe that a uh, literal disembodied spirit, such as Satan or Lucifer, exists. So, and I found that very, very odd. So. Anyway, uh, so it's more than just the uh, rift between us regarding Genesis 3.15 and whether Eve was seduced by a literal devil being that incarnated to take the shape of a humanoid. Well, the Bible clearly says that that happened in Genesis chapter 6, right? It clearly says that. So why not in Genesis chapter 3? And I don't think any Christian denies that it happened in Genesis chapter 6, but maybe there's a non-seedliner who does deny it. Uh, if there is, I'm not aware of any. Okay, so let's get back. So, well, uh, Barley continues, there's many ways to look at this. But one of the main reasons that I want to bring this particular message to you is to open your eyes and give you understanding concerning truth concerning the Word of God. Now, what I'm going to give to you is biblically correct, and so if you don't like it, you're free to seek your own doctrine and your own answers, your own solutions, and those of you who want to continue to believe in a great Satan, as is traditionally taught in the churches, you're free to do so. My basic premise is this, and it hasn't changed, nor has the Word of God changed. There are no other gods before me, beside, beside me, or close to me. Well, that is not saying, uh, well, Paul says there are, there are many gods. Paul says very clearly that there are many gods. And the Bible does not say that uh, demons do not exist, that, that Lucifer does not exist. That is an argument that has come, uh, come through non-seedline Christian identity. And maybe there's other denominations that don't believe in Satan, but I think the, the non-seedline identians are the only ones that I've ever heard proclaim this doctrine. So let's continue. The world out there has a yin and yang philosophy, and that's true, but yin and yang is male and female. <laughs> it's black and white. It's uh, up and down, back and forth. Uh, so uh, what do you mean by yin and yang? Uh, uh, I think he's trying to address the issue of whether or not there is a devil being that is the equal, has equal power to Yahweh, and uh, that is uh, you know, common among non-Christians, and it's common among secular people as well. But nevertheless... A poll was taken many years ago, and I'm sure it's been repeated several times, that do you believe in God and or do you believe in the devil, <laughs> right? And many more people believed in the devil than actually believed in God because they can't explain the evil in the world otherwise. We're, we're going to try to address that issue tonight, okay? Where does evil come from? Who does it? And does Yahweh God actually do evil, 
And I say, no, he does not. He can't violate his own laws. If Yahweh violated his own laws, the universe would collapse. But, of course, that is my opinion, and Dave Barley disagrees, and and many others in the non-seedline camp of identity believe it like that, thanks to Sheldon Emery. But let's continue. That you have a God and you have a positive force. And I think the, uh, that's the, the, it's called the demiurge. The demiurge is a, a very old doctrine of, uh, you know, of long standing in different faiths, but not in Christianity. That, uh, evil, the, the God of evil, and it's two different gods. The demiurge can, consists of two different forces, two different gods, one that is evil and one that is good. And these two gods are duking it out with each other and that uh, there will never be a winner in this fight between the God of evil and the God of good. Okay, that is not Christianity. The the God of Christianity tells us that evil will be destroyed. (laughs) Evil will be defeated in this force. There will be no eternal evil. And the judgment day is the day that we're all anticipating that this destruction of the forces of evil will occur. All right. That's the demiurge compared to Christian doctrine. So he's continued that you have a God and you have a positive force and that you have a God of evil and that is a negative force. I don't, rec- and, and uh, Pure Lily says, I don't recall ever thinking of Satan as a God. However, Satan did speak unto Eve that she could be like God if she ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Also see Isaiah 37, 38, where it says, And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his God, as an example where the Bible refers to other gods, Nishrach, the great eagle, an idol of Nineveh worshipped by Sennacherib, symbolized by the eagle-headed human figure. This is proof that other gods are referred to in the word, but we are not to worship them or put them before our God, who is, of course, Yahweh. So Dave Barley says, Well, I'm sorry, friend, but we have only one God of the Bible, of a positive force and an evil force, and one God, period. Now, I totally disagree with that. I totally disagree with that because yeah, you know, I know he wants to talk about Lucifer and how uh, Lucifer is a non-existent god, but Lucifer uh, simply means son of the uh, light, a being of light. And of course, we know there's even Yahshua talks about there's uh, if your light be good or if your light be evil. Okay, well, light here means consciousness. Light means consciousness in this context. And you have to check the context of these verses very carefully before you can come to a general conclusion as Sheldon Emery and Dave Barley have done. Okay. And for example, let me just go to James 1.13. I'll start with James 1.12. Blessed is the man or the one that endureth temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which it, which the Lord, which Theos, Curios, the Lord, supreme God, this is the supreme God, hath promised to them that love him. Okay? So, not everybody, and of course, the Bible is the covenant message. The Bible is written only to, by, for, and about true Israel, not the Jews, but us, the Caucasian Israelites. So we are the ones to whom these verses are written, and we need to understand the context in which these verses are stated. So after he declares this, that we must endure temptation, it goes back to the book of Job, when Job was recounting Yahweh speaking with Satan, and Yahweh asked Satan, what are you up to? (laughs) And Satan says, well, I'm going to and fro on the planet Earth, uh, implying that he's stirring up trouble. Why, well, he stirred up trouble for Job, did he not? Okay. It wasn't Yahweh who stirred up trouble for Job. It was Satan. But Yahweh permitted Satan to do so. There is a force of evil, but it's not Yahweh. Even though there's a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah that seems to suggest 
that Yahweh does evil, but that is a mistranslation of the word evil, as I will point out. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, what's evil here in the Greek? Kakos. Interesting. Kaka. <laughs> That's obviously the root word for the word kaka. And even our children get, learn the word kaka, right? For, for excrement early in their lives, right? Neither tempteth he any man, any one. You, uh, so it's, it's, it should be any one, not any man, because, uh, odice or udice, it includes the feminine form of udemia. Okay. So it should really have been translated any one. Let me repeat now. Let no one say that when he or she is tempted, I am tempted of the supreme God, Theos. For God cannot be tempted with evil. That seems to contradict uh, the idea that he creates evil. That is, in the sense of violating his own law. And you have to understand that the Hebrew word ra or rea, which is the word for evil, can be understood in many different senses. And we'll get into that, and I think Lily does in her argument, in her uh, critique of Dave Barley's content, uh, you know, article here. Neither tempteth he any man. As I just said in the book of Job, Yahweh did not tempt Job, Satan did. But we have to understand that all of this is a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve back in the garden. And, you know, but that's another issue, whether she was actually uh, seduced and sexually, uh, you know, impregnated by a fallen being, which materialized and the Bible clearly says that the and, and Peter said and Jude that those angels left their first estate okay they left what what is their first estate if not the heavenly heavenly realms okay we have the good angels and we have the fallen angels that's 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 the context of Christianity in terms of how good and evil have come about so let's continue so he says, well, I'm sorry, friend, but we have only one God of the Bible of a positive force and an evil force and one God, period. So, Barley attributes evil to Yahweh. He does. I don't see how you can misinterpret what he just. Let me repeat it again. Well, I'm sorry, friend, but we have only one God of the Bible of a positive force and an evil force and one God, period. Even though the angels <laughs> are often referred to as gods, the word God in the Bible comes from the word Elohim, which is a plural word, not a singular word. And even Paul says there are gods many. So, but most of them are non, non entities because uh, the idols, obviously the idols in the Old Testament are just pieces of wood, you know, who represent fake gods for the most part, but that does not mean there is no devil. It does not mean that there is no disembodied spirit referred to as Lucifer or Satan. And what are you going to do with Revelation when uh, it talks about the devil who is, uh, who is Satan? I mean, is that all figurative language? Or are we all Satan because we do evil? I don't think the Bible ever implies that we are the adversary of Yahweh because we perform evil acts. We're generally speaking, we're our own worst enemies when we do that. So uh, there is, you know, there's a lot going on here that I think the the non-seed liners deliberately overlook. And in my opinion, they deliberately overlook it. Anyway, he says. And uh, Lily is pointing out here, God said he creates evil, not that he is evil. The word evil in Hebrew is ra and means bad, disagreeable, giving pain, unhappiness, misery, calamity, etc. So when Isaiah says that Yahweh creates evil, it's telling us that he creates the punishment 
and uh, the, for evil. That's contained in the in the Ten Commandments and in all of His laws. That's what the law, the statutes, and the judgments are all about. That if you violate Yahweh's law, then such and such things will happen to you, and none of those things are good. They're evil in the sense that they're bad for you. They're not evil in the sense that Yahweh Himself is evil, or that He performs evil acts, or even more importantly in the sense that he violates his own law. I think uh, James is very clear that you know, Yahweh does not, there's no temptation in him, but he allows temptation because of the fall. And we have to go through this world of temptation to be tried. We're tried in the furnace of fire. We are tried in the furnace of fire and we have to endure that that's you know, not to, in that sense the Bible and our God is evil you know but how are we going to get through this how are we going to overcome the fact that evil was impregnated into our species by Nahash all right so uh, where did it come from well uh, Barley seems to think it comes from Yahweh God I would uh, I, I would think that he would have to do a, an elaboration on that, but he's no longer with us, and I've never had a chance to talk with him on this subject, okay? But let's continue. What And, and uh, Barley continues. Whatever powers there are, he controls them all. Yeah, he is in charge of everything. However, he gives us free will, which means that he does not dictate how we should act. The term free will and uh, giving of our own free will, the Bible is replete, replete with utterances such as those. And it would make no sense for us for, for us to have Yahweh's law if it, if it were not possible to for us to violate it. He did not make the law for himself. He does not cause us to do evil, as James just said. He does not cause us. He does not do temptation. He is not the source of temptation. It is that other force that is the source of temptation. Okay? We are tried and tested to see if we can prevail over evil in this world. And to that extent, Yahweh has created, only to the extent that he created free will. And because we have free will to do good or evil, there is evil in the the world. But even before us, there was the fall of Lucifer. And we probably need to go into great detail about the concept of Lucifer. I don't think we can discuss all of this in one show, but let's continue. And But this statement is true. Whatever powers there are, he controls them all, but not he does not control our actions. He does not control our beliefs because why? The fact is that most people contradict Yahweh constantly. It's a daily thing. He tolerates us in our evil and is forgiving, but he does not force us to commit evil acts. That would make no sense whatsoever because if God was the one performing the evil that we do, then he would be responsible for it. It would be unjust of him to punish us for evil that he does. Okay, is that a fair statement? It would be unjust of Yahweh to punish us for evil that he does. And this is apparently the mindset that Dave Barley has and that Sheldon Emery had. If you don't believe that there is another force that tempts us, then I don't believe you're understanding the Bible correctly. Anyway, he continues, And when I read the scriptures concerning Lucifer and who Lucifer is, I'm sorry, but the traditional teachings concerning Israel in that aspect of Satan has to be pushed aside for truth. Okay, that is David Barley's opinion, of course. So to begin with, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Now this particular chapter is not the one he was in dispute over. But nonetheless, uh, who is he talking about? Is he talking about Pastor Emery? I'm not sure. This uh, it's not clear. Uh, what? Uh, 
I, I think maybe he's saying that Lucifer is not the subject of the chapter. Maybe that's what he's trying to say. But nonetheless, we are going to go there and cover a little bit of it. Isaiah chapter 14, and we will start reading in verse 3. And it shall come to pass in the day that Yahweh shall give the... Oh, that's another you know uh, area of difference between seed liners and non-seed liners. The non-seed liners do not uh, tend to use the uh, sacred names, Yahweh and Yahshua. Uh, and many of them, in fact, most of them don't practice the feast days. They, they do worship on Sundays and maybe some of them on Saturdays. So they do practice the Sabbath, but many of them believe that the law has been done away with and other Judeo-Christian constructs. So, you know, it's really a mixed bag depending on which non-seed liner you're talking to, okay? So uh, any kind of what I consider to be weird statements can come out of their mouths, you know, such as, I don't believe in evil, you know, or or, or that that uh, Yahweh, uh, they do believe that Yahweh performs evil acts. No, he, he judges people who do evil by giving them Unhappiness, misery, calamity, etc. Actually, let me go into, uh, I think, a little bit more detail, because I queued up an article about this very subject. And it is about Isaiah 45.7. And I'm going to share this in the chat room as well. Let me copy this real quick. I have to switch browsers to find the article. Uh, but this is a very good discussion of what's actually going on. Let's see. Yeah, okay, that, that took. All right, what's actually going on in Isaiah 45, 7. And the the article is entitled, Does Isaiah 45, 7 Teach That God Created Evil? By Alan Schlemann. And this is Stand to Reason, Clear Thinking, Christianity. And he says, after posting a recent video answering the question of whether God created evil, I received pushback from some believers. I made the claim that evil is the privation of good or results from the absence of goodness. Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, That's what a lot of people define evil as, namely the absence of goodness, but how does how does the absence of goodness come about, right? Is it just making mistakes? Or is it deliberate acts of evil? Well, most of it, the vast majority of it, is deliberate. No doubt about that. Uh, I've had plenty of accidents in my life, but most of my heartache and sorrow have come from other people doing things to me that are not good, deliberately, right? Okay, he says, it's not something God created when he made all things in the beginning. The absence of goodness, something happened along the way that uh, created real evil. Several people asked how I reconciled my claim with Isaiah 45, 7, where it says, quote, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things, unquote. There it is, in plain English. God said he created evil. And this, of course, is the position that Dave Barley takes and Sheldon Emery took. This thinking is mistaken for three reasons. First, if we interpret this verse as meaning that God brought evil into existence, it goes against the theology of evil taught elsewhere in Scripture. And everything we know about God, for example, God is good and there is no darkness in him, 1 John 1.15. So you have to take the the contradictions of Scripture into account when you interpret the, the Isaiah forty five seven as meaning that God literally created evil. That is not a literal statement. He created calamity as punishment for evil is what that really means. But we'll see what this author means thinks it means. It would render the Bible incoherent. Although non-Christians might level such a charge, this post is not intended to address the coherence question since it is directed to believers who already accept the inspiration and coherence of Scripture. Well, that would include non-seedliners, okay? Although, if you believe that Yahweh created evil, or go beyond that and even suggest that Yahweh does evil acts, 
or do, or makes us do evil acts, then we're really going out into limbo. But let's continue. Second, the Hebrew word translated as evil in the above King James translation is translated as calamity in the NASB and ESV or disaster in the NIV. Oh, yeah, he surely does that. He punishes us with calamity, disaster, war, famine, you name it. But these are all punishments for evil acts on our part, not for evil done by Yahweh. Okay, and it's translated disaster in the NIV and in other major translations. Even the updated New King James translation renders it as calamity. That's because, like any word, it can have multiple meanings, and it is usually the context that determines which meaning was intended by the author. That brings us to the final point, and I think that this is actually a very important point, the context. Third, the context of this passage and the message of the prophets of the Old Testament in general is about blessing those who are faithful and punishing those who disobey. And that's in Isaiah 45, 9 and 24. It's within this principle that Yahweh, or I'll just use the terminology he uses, that God declares that he creates well-being and calamity. He's responsible for bringing prosperity to those who are faithful and calamity to those who rebel. That's even consistent with his treatment of his own people, Israel. He rewards them when they obey and punishes them, for example, slavery, exile, etc., when they disobey. In that sense, yes, it is God who creates calamity. But that's a different sense of disobeying his law, his own law. Is there any verse in Scripture that states that Yahweh disobeys his own law? I think if Sheldon Emery and Dave Barley had phrased the question such, they might have a different response, but I can't guess because they are the dearly departed, and uh, I believe despite our disagreement here that they will be in the kingdom. They have uh, Their good outweighs their, their bad <laughs> tremendously, absolutely tremendously. Okay, let's continue. So he says, God didn't bring evil into existence. It's the result of sin in our fallen world. God, however, does bring instances of calamity on people. In fact, it's his prerogative to do so. Even in these cases, though, it is good for him to render judgment on guilty people. I would think so. Though we might subjectively not like the calamity we face, it is objectively good to punish those who do wrong. And doesn't Paul say, uh, blessed are those who love chastisement you know if you if you find out you're wrong and admit you're wrong well then you take your punishment but if you admit you're wrong and swear never to do it again then Yahweh may forgive you entirely and not punish you at all he has that prerogative present day justice systems operate in a similar fashion prison is subjectively a bad experience for prisoners but it is an objectively good thing for justice to be rendered and objectively a good thing for the victims of their crimes, for them to be taken off the streets. But our, our so-called justice system doesn't do that anymore. It does not punish blacks and Latinos for rape and murder. And even if they are prosecuted and tried and found guilty, they're let out in the street within a matter of months for murder while white people get thrown in jail for years for using forbidden language. Isn't that ironic? Anyway, Isaiah 45.7 was a reminder that God blessed those who honored him and brought calamity upon those who disobeyed. And that, I think, is the correct way of viewing Isaiah 45.7. And that is from Stand to Reason, Clear Thinking Christianity, and the author is Alan Schliemann, okay? So, uh, and that's fairly recent. That's uh, March 23rd, 2022. So, again, you always have to take, and even I do this, I take the opinions of mainstream theologians into account to see what they think about controversial uh, verses. 
and do not you know, make a snap judgment based on just the false understanding of one word, namely evil. Okay, so it's apparent to me that Sheldon Emery and Dave Barley just have one definition for the word evil, namely to do deliberate bad, de- deliberately bad things. And that is not the case in Isaiah 45, 7. You ha- as the author says, you have to take this into context. The context is the important thing. So let's get back to the article. So, and he says, as we start reading in verse 3, let me repeat here, and it shall come to pass in the day in the day that Yahweh shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from thy hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. First of all, let me point out right here and there that it is speaking this chapter and this this scripture to who? The king of Babylon. Well, that is... Barley's opinion. <laughs> this is, in my opinion, actually a double metaphor. It's addressing and comparing two kings to each other. But here's what Lily has to say. Actually, Isaiah 14, verses 1 through 3, is a prophecy about Israel's restoration, and verses 4 through 8 about the oppressor ceased. See Companion Bible, page 948. Now, that's very interesting. I had not considered that, but that is very interesting. And maybe next week we can uh, bring up the Companion Bible and and look at that for ourselves. And Barley continues, okay, I think it's very clear. And it speaks of a city, Babylon. Well, it is clear when it's speaking of Babylon, but is, is Isaiah really addressing only the king of Babylon? And Babylon, which means confusion by mixing, and he obviously means race mixing here. This is one of the points where the non-seed liners agree with us that race mixing is evil. That uh, Babylon is going to fall, and it is going to describe the fall of Babylon. And Lily says, a closer look at the word for golden city is better translated as oppressor. The king of Babylon, who happened to be Nebuchadnezzar at the time, is compared to an oppressor that is about to fall. I just want you to, and Barley continues, and I just want you to follow with me as I go through these verses, and I think you will see that it's pretty much self-explanatory. Okay, again, this is Barley's opinion that it's self-explanatory. I think it's way more uh, complicated than he thinks. Anyway, he quotes, The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Yes, he has. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and none hindereth. He's talking about the king of Babylon here, because Babylon had its heyday and was overthrown by the Medes and Persians. The whole earth is at rest for a while, and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art Laid down, no feller has come up against us. So it, clearly, these verses are about Babylon. There's no doubt about that. Now I want you to notice that there are trees described that rejoice at thee and the cedars of Lebanon, okay? And Lily says, the cedars of Lebanon refers to Nebuchadnezzar's and Esarhaddon's cutting down as recorded in their inscriptions. They tell how they brought the greatest trees from the summits of Lebanon to Babylon. Unquote. Nebuchadnezzar, moreover, boasts that he will do it in his message to Hezekiah in Isaiah 37, 38. Okay, uh, that's the concluding uh, remark here by Lily. And then he goes to verse 9. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. Well, how does he define hell? <laughs> right? It clearly say that hell is from beneath. And neither Dave Barley or Sheldon Emery believe that there is a dominion underneath what? Underneath the earth? Underneath the dominion of Yahweh? It can be taken literally or figuratively, but there are terms in Scripture where it has to be taken literally, such as the shades 
which are demonic spirits living under the earth. That's how they are defined in Strong's Concordance. So let's continue. Okay, he says, well, that gets the old bastards clicking right there when they see this word hell. Is he calling me an old bastard? (laughs) They say, see, this is describing hell, and this is about Lucifer, and this is about his domain and hell, and how God is going to bring this beautiful archangel down from his high place in heaven and cast him into the pits of hell. Cough, well, we'll see. It says that, quote, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even at all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Now, obviously, the king of Babylon is not doing these things. Hell, the subject of the sentence is hell. Hell is doing these things, not the king of Babylon. Hell is the subject of the sentence here, not the king of Babylon. Uh, So how can Dave Barley not grasp this? Let's continue. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? (laughs) Well, they're speaking from the underworld. Welcome down to the underworld, dear king of Babylon. Join us. Art thou become like unto us? Yes, you have. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. Right? Your body is now eaten up by worms. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Now, Is the king of Babylon ever referred to as son of the morning? I don't think so. This is a double metaphor. It's comparing Lucifer to the king of Babylon, both of whom are real entities. Barley is arguing that one is real and the other is unreal. But he has not proven that this is the case. He he must deny the reality of other dimensions in this line of argument. So how would he regard Genesis chapter six, where it, it says that these these angels fell from heaven and made love to Adamic women? Where did they come from? He must have an interpretation which says, well, they were just human beings. But how can they be the sons of God? <laughs> so he must he must believe that the sons of God are actually what? Only, only Adamites are ever referred to as sons of God. But have, have Adamite men mated with uh, Adamite women and produced giants? I don't think so. So he's trying to oversimplify the argument, and you know, there's more going on here than Dave Barley wants to admit, but let's continue. He continues, Now ye can hold one perspective, which is that this is talking about Lucifer, that archangel in heaven, this devil, who was pretty close to God Almighty. They were good friends, good buddies. Everything was going pretty good up in heaven until Lucifer thought of himself to be as a god, And God said, we can't have this, buddy. I'm kicking you out of heaven, and I'm sending you to hell. Now, he's making light of the whole idea that Lucifer is real and Lucifer rebelled. Now, that's the traditional basic teaching, basically. Have I basically got it down right? Yes, you have basically got it down right. That is a teaching. And uh, even Judeo-Christians believe, you know, some version of this. And so Lily adds here, Lucifer is the morning star. Worshipped by the Assyrians as male at sunrise, female at sunset. A name of Satan, Companion Bible, page 949. Okay. So it's definitely the name of a god. And I don't know if the Babylonian 
monarchs demanded that they be worshipped as gods, as the Roman, as the Roman, uh, you know, Caesars did. I'm not sure about that, but whether they demanded that worship or not, they weren't gods, right? They, they were human beings. And Barley continues, or you can look at this form from another perspective, and I believe it is the correct biblical perspective that this king of Babylon is Lucifer. Well, I would say the correct perspective is that the two are being compared to one another. It is metaphorical language, but the entities are real. Obviously, Dave Barley would not suggest that the king of Babylon is a metaphorical entity. So is the king of Babylon being compared to an unreal entity or to an entity that had similar power in another realm? I don't think you can just dismiss that. Lucifer, that's his name. And Lily interjects here. I believe what Barley means is that the term Lucifer is referring to the king of Babylon, not the other way around. Well, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, I agree that uh, Barley is, he's using one term metaphorically and the other term literally. But that's not the way these verses read. You know, and uh, I think we're fallen from heaven. We'd have to do a word study of each of these words. And, uh, and of course, uh, I think the key phrase is son of the morning. Uh, I may have to go into my Strong's Concordance here. And what is this, the meaning of this term, son of the morning? And can this literally be applied to the king of Babylon? So, but uh, I haven't queued up these uh, verses. I only have about 10 minutes left. So I, I think I'll save the, uh, a more detailed study of these verses for next week. But clearly, he is not accepting both entities as literal. He only accepts one entity as literal and the other as figurative. And Lily continues, The king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, who was not worshipped by the Assyrians. That's that's correct. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar worshipped Daniel at one point, Daniel 2.46, and later set up a golden calf for the people to worship, Daniel 3.7. So I disagree that Lucifer is this king of Babylon. Rather, Isaiah is comparing the king of Babylon to Lucifer. Yeah, that's right on the money. And these verses take both entities literally. Both entities literally. And he held, not one metaphorical and the other literal. And he held a great, uh, and continuing with Barley here, and he held a great position of power and wealth. Well, yeah, he did. Babylon, it was, it was a great merchant city. Many nations, many kingdoms dependent upon the power and the wealth of this great city. It's kind of like the United States of America today. Can you imagine if the stock market of the United States of America fell? Well, yeah, it has several times. <laughs> what a great trembling that would send to all other nations that are dependent upon the United States of America and its wealth and its power and its position. But it's speaking about this individual, this king of Babylon being brought down. What's What's it describing? That, hey, I'm going to bring you down to the pit. I'm going to bring death upon you. You're going to die, and your city and its power are going to cease. And when you fall, it's going to weaken the nations, and there's going to be a great economic earthquake as you've never seen before. Again, can you imagine if the U.S. fell as an economic power? Would there not be a great economic upheaval and economic earthquake? Sure, there would be. Yeah, and we don't disagree with any of that. However, as I said earlier, uh, with regard to these verses, let me scroll up and get the uh, verses, uh, starting with verse 9. He doesn't actually list the actual verses, but it says the subject of the verses he's talking about is hell. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee, that is the king of Babylon, at thy coming. And so it's telling us that there are entities in hell, waiting for the king of Babylon to arrive. It's not just death and disappearance. 
Do they literally believe that when you die, your soul just vanishes? Is that what the non-seedliners literally believe? Then what about the chapter in, in Matthew chapter 25, where the Israelites, the dearly departed Israelites come out of their graves and visit the living Israelites and tell them and explain to them that the Messiah has risen from the dead. He's not the only one who rose from the dead. The Israelites, the good Israelites from the Old Testament who qualified to enter into the kingdom, they also rose from the dead. That is the meaning of the wave sheaf. Not just the Messiah rose from the dead. The qualified Israelites rose from the dead as well. It was a, a, a big deal. It was a, it was a harvest of souls at that point in time. And even Paul refers to death as a form of sleep, not a form of dissipation of the soul. So it, 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 a lot depends on the assumptions you make about what the grave means. But here it's clearly saying that there are entities waiting for the king of Babylon to come down to join them. As I'll, I'll read the third verse here. All they shall speak and say unto thee who are in hell. Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Okay. So those verses clearly indicate that there are people down there. There are entities down there. Not just emptiness. Okay. And, but, and then Lily interjects. Let me repeat what he says there. Now, if Lucifer is some archangel and he brings Okay, uh, let me read the whole paragraph. We're running out of time here. Now, these things, these ideas and these concepts that we were talking about, about the idea that the Judeo-Christian point of view and the concept concerning Lucifer, well, it's not just Judeo-Christian. This, uh, even the, even the earliest Christians believed in a literal devil, a literal hell. It, it isn't just a modern idea. You really have to read a lot between the lines to come up with some of these ideas and some of these concepts concerning Lucifer. Well, you have to ignore uh, the, the actual words that I just read, that read. It's not just about the king of Babylon. It's about people in hell waiting for him to join them. That's the context of the message there. But this Lucifer is brought down to the ground, and it did weaken the nations. It did weaken the nations. Now, if Lucifer is some archangel... And he brings him down to earth. How is the weakening of the nations? Answer me that. It doesn't. Well, if Lucifer is the driving spirit of rebellion on the planet earth, a disembodied spirit, and there's no evidence you know, created by Barley or Emery that disembodied spirits don't exist. We know they exist because those Israelites came out of their graves to join Yahshua. When he arose, and there's all kinds of verses about demons and angels and archangels, what are these figments of the biblical imagination? Okay, are you just ignoring all this and pretending it's not real? What does the Bible become if you say a lot of these concepts aren't real? Where does it leave us if you believe that Yahweh does evil acts? We're in trouble <laughs> if Yahweh performs evil acts. Anyway, Lily says, A, this fall of Babylon is being compared to the fall of Satan in the first earth age. Quote, the world that then was as found in the book of Peter, Second Peter 3, 6, and, and he says verse 13, or I'm not sure, it's probably also verse 13. Yeah, yeah. It's very obvious that the apostles, Yahshua, the early Christian fathers, they all believed in a literal Satan and did, did not deny the existence of hell as a pit, right, of mourning and, and judgment. Okay, they never denied that. And then he quotes, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. Who said this, Barley says, and Lily answers, the oppressor. It should be noted that the children of Israel were oppressed in Egypt and Syria, not Babylon, so the king of Babylon is not the oppressor. 
but only being compared to the oppressor. So he couldn't possibly be Lucifer. Now, uh, so, uh, what she, I think she, what she means is that the, uh, the king of Babylon couldn't possibly be Lucifer. Nebuchadnezzar was the son of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. Very interesting. And therefore the house of David and didn't consider himself God. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever Nebuchadnezzar considered himself, he is not the oppressor and he was, he is not, uh, that is being referenced here. Very good, good point, Lily. And, uh, he was not worshiped as a god by the Assyrians. So, uh, but it still begs the question, did the Babylonian kings demand to be worshiped as gods? I'm not aware that they demand, made such a demand. Okay. So good points here by Lily. So, and, uh, and the king of Babylon actually, as she pointed out earlier, worshiped Daniel as a god. <laughs> right. So, and then he continues, the king of Babylon, Lucifer, I'm going to be as the most high. Well, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar eventually came around to admitting that Yahweh was the most high God. So, if that's the case, and that is the case, would he, after admitting that Yahweh is the most high God, after seven years of insanity, would he, when would he have declared that I am bigger than Yahweh? So all these points need to be addressed, and the non-seedliners don't address these issues. So anyway, he continues by saying, the king of Babylon, Lucifer, I'm going to be as the most high. Well, that's an assumption that uh, the king of Babylon considers himself to be Lucifer. That's not what these verses are saying. There's no way that the king of Babylon considered himself to be Lucifer. These verses are comparing Lucifer with the king of Babylon. That, to me, is a straightforward reading. And I think, uh, you know, the uh, the references that Lily has made so far you know, uh, they're not Judeo-Christian. Well, <laughs> many of them are, but uh, the the vast, vast majority of early Christians had no problem with uh, believing in disembodied spirits and Lucifer, and none of them believed that God performed evil acts or made us perform evil acts. Anyway, let's continue. And he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Now, how far north? <laughs> okay. Now, what does this mean? Barley asks. The north star, I guess? And Lily answers here. The north is God's dwelling place. See Psalm 75, 6, Job 26, 7. The mount of the congregation is not Zion, but the divine assembly of judgment. See Psalm 75, 2, 82 and 1. Quote, God stands in the assembly of the gods, and in the midst of them will judge gods, unquote. And that's the uh, Septuagint uh, translation. This shows that this verse is not talking about a place here on earth, but rather a place in heaven. Very good, Lily. Very good. For those people, and Barley continues, and I'll end on this verse here. For those people who want to believe that Satan was up there in the sky and the stars, uh, no, this is talking about how he wanted to pre to present, to, to be in control of this northern terrain. He was going to have control of this particular landmass in this particular area. And I'll conclude with the next sentence here. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And Lily says, the Most High, Elion in Hebrew. Isn't this what Satan, that old serpent, said to Eve? That you can be like God, right? And so, yeah, there are major problems with this. I'm trying to characterize how this is. It's like the, the skeptic's guide to the Bible by non-seedline identity. So the non-seedliners disbelieve in a lot of concepts that the Gospels say are literal. Okay, and so, yeah, we'll have to save uh, this for part two. There may be even three or more parts to this, 
because we're going to have to go through these verses that have been referenced, you know, in greater detail. So let's consider this an introduction to the subject. We're going to have to do more detail. And I think the more detail we get into, we're going to find out that there are other realms of existence not recognized by the non-seedline identity group. Okay. So this is, this was started by Sheldon Emery. And there are others, people who don't believe in hell and there's, there's people who don't believe in heaven. But even quantum mechanics says there are other realms of existence that we can't explain and they exist, right? And our five senses cannot explain everything that's in the world, period. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Good job, Lily. We'll get into this uh, in even greater detail next week. And everybody take care. And Yahweh bless all of your endeavors, especially if you are righteous. So take care, everybody. And bye for now.